Hi, I'm Charlie Harp, and this is the Infomonster Podcast. Today on the Infomonster Podcast, we're going to be talking about fire. No, not uh, flammable substances, but the actual fire standard and the terminology resources specifically. And today with me, I have Carol MacUmber, our EVP of Client Services, and Carol Graham, who is the product manager for our Pivot product and fire-related product enhancements or product offerings. I'd like to go ahead and start by asking Carol Mack to give us a little background and her uh, talk about her involvement in fire. Sure. Uh, hi, everybody. So, uh, Carol Macumber, um, I'm currently a vocabulary workgroup co-chair uh, with HL7, which means, you know, I'm part of the uh, group that has responsibility over the terminology services, resources, and related operations. Um, and in my other copious spare time, I'm also the uh, vice chair of the HL7 Terminology Authority, who has the responsibility of uh, managing some of the relationships with uh, the external code system owners that contribute content and that's used in fire um, and other products within the hl7 family great thank you carol carol graham how about you hi i am a hybrid of clinician and technical person by background i'm both a registered nurse and have an it background of basic IT training, I could say. And so I've done clinical care in the past and been doing healthcare IT for about the last 20 years and been at Clinical Architecture 3. And so I participate in the vocabulary work group at HL7, and I'm responsible here at Clinical Architecture for the ways that we use FHIR in a number of different products. Excellent. And I am Charles Hart, the CEO of Clinical Architecture, fire enthusiast, and a big fan of both Carol's. I know we're going to get into some topics around terminology resources, release plans, and other things relative to fire. But one of the things I think would be good, and I'm going to ask you, Carol Graham, to do this. For somebody who's dialing into the podcast or tuning into the podcast that doesn't have a clue about what we're talking about when we say fire, how would you like to give like a quick fire elevator speech? Sure. FHIR is an acronym, F-H-I-R, that stands for Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. And it's the latest generation of interoperability standards in healthcare. It's owned and approved by HL7 and published through ISO standards as well. So it's ISO compliant, etc. And it's an international standard for exchanging patient data and clinical data in healthcare. It's based on REST as a services paradigm, and data can be exchanged in a number of different formats, XML, JSON, etc. And so the key concepts in FHIR are kind of an uncoupling of the data, which is referred to as resources, and the services or the operations that you can do on the data. And that helps with exchanging data in a number of different ways, and it's the next generation of interoperability. So that unlike, say, HL7v2, which is more transactional or event-driven, or CCDA, which is more kind of document-driven. FHIR is kind of a hybrid that lets you mix and match the pieces that you need to achieve the data exchange that you're looking for for your particular use case. Thank you, Carol. Carol McCumber, you got anything additional on that? I guess I would say for a lot of people, their familiarity with FHIR, perhaps, you know, where they started hearing about it first is, you know, within rules that we see coming out of our, you know, at least the U.S. federal government uh, with regards to providing standardized patient access API 
application interface access. And Fire has been deemed both by the Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services and HHS's Office of the National Coordinator as the standard uh, that would be utilized for that exchange. One of the things that I think is interesting about FHIR, when I first heard about FHIR years ago, it was probably in an HL7 conference or AMIA, and it represents a pretty powerful idea because in healthcare, we still have all these silos of information and these barriers to interoperability, and FHIR is really, I've always seen FHIR as this mechanism for the canonical normalization of data. So unlike HL7, which is really the HL7 standard that's been around forever. When you look at the 2.x standard, it's really a messaging format and you have a message and the message has a purpose and you bundle things up in the message. There's a lot of wiggle room in the messages, the segments. It's a container for moving information. It's a little bit different than fire because a lot of people I think get hung up on, well, how is it different than HL7? And you guys correct me if you think I'm wrong, but to me, what fire tries to do as opposed to saying, here's a container to send a message about a thing that you want to do, FHIR is really saying, take the data that you have in your system when I need it, and here's a standard canonical representation that I want you to put it in so that we're all talking the same thing, the same bits for this type of data, as opposed to here's a container to put your data into. Does that make sense, or do you guys think I'm way off base? I mean, I think that makes sense. And, and, you know, one of the differentiating factors, and I think part of the reason that people or implementers kind of love, you know, the approach that FHIR's taken in terms of how the standard is being developed um, really is a focus on implementation and implementers and applying this like 80-20 rule when assessing, you know, what changes should or could or would be made to FHIR. The fact that it's an international standard that allows for extensibility and, and extensions brings it to the table as something that can transcend borders, I suppose, um, but still provide a standardized way to exchange healthcare information. Well, it's got, I mean, Graham, Grieve, it has very pragmatic roots. It wasn't like some standards that kind of evolved out of a group of people saying, hey, we want to do this. Fire actually evolved out of somebody trying to solve an actual problem. And then it kind of evolved from there. Okay. Well, on our agenda, one of the things we have is fire terminology resources. And what's next? Who wants to take a crack at that one? Um, I can start, and I'm sure Carol will uh, help me fill in some gaps here. As a uh, part of the, you know, kind of foundation and infrastructure of FHIR, terminology plays a very special and critical role. Terminology is in the need for standardized terminology through the use of things like code systems and value sets or, or concept maps is seen across all of the resources um, within the FHIR ecosystem. Whether they're considered kind of infrastructural or internal FHIR terminology to support things like resource status and other things that are tied mainly to the messaging standard, all the way to the use of external terminologies and incorporating Bloink and SNOMED and other clinical terminologies into the mix. The current resources kind of support that base functionality of describing your terminology, your code system, and the metadata associated with it, then providing you a resource to exchange that through the value set resource. Those two are our current normative um, resources within FHIR, where we're looking to then next kind of bring, you know, the reality of concept map and ability to associate concepts from different code systems with each other 
to the next probably normative release. So not necessarily this interim one that's being planned, but um, into the next normative release as, as we within the vocabulary work group kind of see that as being fundamental. The operations, some may find, you know, are too basic in terms of um, what they allow you to do with a conformant fire terminology service. You know, we might be talking about that kind of here as part of the podcast. Um, but what is included are the basic functionalities that were anticipated that people need uh, in terms of interacting with terminology within a fire server. Uh, so you have the ability to look up codes within a code system, to validate that a code is a member of a value set, and or do things like, you know, give me a translation given one code and a target terminology, if it's available within a concept map, give me the associated concept. So, you know, that kind of covers what's there right now. Um, and along with, you know, a very immature resource for those who are developing terminology services called terminology capabilities, which allows the fire terminology service to communicate with the user what it supports. So what operations it supports, what resources it supports, and just as importantly, kind of what code systems it supports and what my default behavior is um, when you're interacting with my fire terminology service. Thank you, Carol. Carol Graham, as the person that tries to make sure that we're staying current with our products dealing with fire as a terminology service vendor. What do you think are some of the challenges and some of the things that are interesting about us trying to replicate or work with the fire terminology standard? One of the challenges that we as a vendor face is sort of what Carol alluded to, and I'm going to build on it a little bit, is that as a terminology company or terminology and semantic interoperability experts, we have certain ways that are fairly robust and fine-grained of implementing our terminology management. And so one of the challenges is aligning what we have with what FIRE offers. Obviously, I feel like we've been able to do that fairly successfully, or I wouldn't be doing what I do, but that's one of the challenges. And the thing that I think is more interesting, though, is ways that FIRE enables a lot of new kinds of applications that are really fast and easy to stand up. And so think about the interoperability of wearable devices being able to send patient monitored data into a clinical application or to even integrate with a clinical data repository so that patients have their data there on their mobile device to be able to take with them to an appointment with a doctor or other provider or think about very specialized uses. Some of the things that we learned about at Safire Dev Days where people who've never done clinical programming before, but they have lived with type 1 diabetes all their life, and they're able to quickly integrate information from their monitoring device with information from their insulin pump and create a very customized and highly functional application that can be verified and deployed very quickly. And FIRE has enabled that in ways that its predecessors just couldn't do. And I think that's also really interesting. Thank you. So when we look at the future of FIRE, you know, FIRE had kind of a slow burn, if you'll pardon the pun in the beginning. The, the most interesting thing about FIRE to me is the rallying cry. People see it as a way to leverage information across the silos of healthcare and I think one of the things that drives adoption of standards like FIRE is an ecosystem. So one of the reasons why I think FIRE has gotten a lot of interest and attention 
is because it allows for people that are developing applications that help you know represent data and share data are able to build things they can sell into the fire ecosystem which is powerful and also drives adoption and kind of pushing the system vendors to try to do a better job of being able to work with fire and interact with fire one of the things that i think for some people is a struggle is the release cycle process for fire you know i was on the phone with somebody the other day who's you know building something that supports you know dtsu2 and we're currently staring down the barrel of r5 and so i guess my question would be based upon what you guys know with fire and their release plans when do you think it's going to slow down a little bit or what are your thoughts on their release process in general yeah, I mean, I think it's all about perspective, right? So some may may think, God, the standards world moves so slowly, it's monolithic. And why in the world does it take years to go from one version to another? Whereas others who maybe have had a little bit more practical experience implementing the standards realize that programming change costs money <laughs> and certainly also makes an assumption that others are moving to another version at the same pace that you are. Um, otherwise, the interoperability really isn't there. As far as fire is concerned, I think they're trying to balance this this rapid uptake from the marketplace, but also, you know, the demand from at least in the U.S., you know, the federal government and the versions that they are writing into law and trying to meet the needs for new resources while also not moving too quickly. That the folks who are just now, you know, trying to program R4 and are still, you know, working through that process won't have to already start thinking about, you know, R4B to that. I mean, I, you know, I can share, you know, that coming out of the September work group, um, I think, you know, the fire management board, along with, you know, the HL7 community has landed on some tentative timeline for the next few releases. Um, and, and the next one is, is actually kind of an interim R4B. Um, that is really has been born of the need for some new resources um, within the medication space, uh, pharmacy, right? So medication definition, along with some evidence-based um, medication resources. Uh, so R4B, which is kind of slotted for the January 2021 uh, ballot cycle, um, will be a technical correction with very limited new resources. And I can tell you, you know, from the vocab worker perspective, we would love to see concept map included in R4B with some corrections and improvements, not necessarily to normative status, but some improvements that um, have taken the last, you know, six to eight months for the vocabulary community to come to agreement to. The prospect of waiting for R5, um, which would start somewhere around the May 2021 ballot uh, for content feedback um, and not be into normative and SDU cycles until September 2021. So that's a year out from now um, and not published until, you know, Q2 of 2022 um, is somewhat daunting. It has to be. And I think they're doing a decent job of trying to balance those needs um, with the fact that the industry, you know, can't deal with or keep up with any churn faster than that. What are some of the successes that you guys have seen relative to fire? Things that you would consider to be something that we could look at to show that fire is doing what people want it to do. Carol McCumber? 
Sure. I mean, I think there are there are a few examples. I mean, I think, you know, for those of us um, in the U.S. who are looking for standardization, you know, across uh, the large EMRs and, and the payers and, and so on, um, you know, looking to U.S. Core and the progress that ONC is making in terms of supporting the effort for there to be a, a U.S.-based and focused um, implementation of FIRE, uh, you know, we can look to U.S. Core and how that's been collaborating with the uh, other groups at ONC uh, to align with things like U.S. CDI. Uh, I think to bring the next level of sophistication of standardization within U.S., um, although it's not finalized and there's still, you know, versions of U.S. Core being developed, I think that's a good sign, a sign in the right direction. Just the reality that was uh, brought to light with COVID and how how we aren't quite ready to um, not only take in data, standardize, analyze it, and share it in real time with a pandemic in play, um, I think is a motivator for a lot of people. You know, I think I, I read an article recently, you know, that kind of talked about how terminology and standards are at the core of improving decision-making and reporting of patient data across that care continuum. Because COVID obviously, you know, kind of showed how there's all of these scenarios where a patient would be moving from primary care to emergency care to perhaps back to a hospice or senior care facility. And the ability to make quick decisions and tracking of those laboratory results is necessary. Uh, And the use of uh, terminology standards can help reduce the terminology standards and just exchange standards like fire can help reduce the time spent right in trying to manually resolve differences in the data that's being received um, and increase the efficiency of, of exchanging and tracking and reporting uh, that kind of information across the various systems and throughout that patient's journey. Anything to add, Carol Graham? I think that really covers it. So, One of the things about FIRE that I think sometimes people don't completely understand is FIRE is a canonical model. It basically lays out, this is what a resource is, and this is what we expect to be in it. And then you have the value sets and the content that is expected in FIRE, um, because obviously if you have a standard packaging or a standard canonical format, that's great. But if your data in that format is is uh, all different, you still have a, a pretty significant interoperability problem. Do you guys want to talk about the UTG and content in FIRE? Yeah, sure. I could start off. I mean, so for those of you who aren't familiar with our uh, alphabet soup within the HL7 uh, community, um, UTG stands for Unified Terminology Governance. Um, and really, that, you know, that project, which is uh, being run out of the vocabulary work group, aims at providing a more modern approach and tools associated with what was a very slow manual harmonization process within the HL7 community. So what that means is they're putting in place um, new tools and processes to guide the process by which content that's used within the HL7 product families uh, is maintained um, and harmonized, right? So uh, there are there's a lot of content that's used in V2 and V3 and Fire that are semantically equivalent, um, yet exist in different code systems. Uh, and there's not always going to be the opportunity to kind of harmonize to a single code system, but where that makes sense and is possible, uh, UTG aims at identifying those um, and providing a single code system resource or identifier. And what it's also doing is providing 
a place for uh, the implementers who are creating implementation guides to get help with creating code system resources and value set resources um, that are going to be used within products like Fire. Um, it, it also, you know, kind of brings continuous integration and release uh, to the HL7 content process, whereas before harmonization, I think, occurred, you know, a few times every year, um, which meant if you missed the latest harmonization cycle, it would take months um, for you to be able to make and get approved changes to some of the HL7 code systems. With modernization comes a lot of advantages, but also it raises new questions, you know, for folks, uh, including us and, and Carol in particular, about how do you manage content coming out of UTG? Um, and when is the most appropriate time to pick up a new build and integrate into your terminology server? So, I mean, I think there's, there's lots of opportunities for, um, for people to, to take a look at UTG and what's being planned and coming out of HL7 and provide some feedback from, from boots on the ground and people implementing terminology services about how that content um, can be packaged and consumed. Excellent. Thank you, Carol. Carol Graham, when people need to get content from Fire, where do you go to get that? Where do you get the value sets from? Well, if you don't want to get it from us <laughs> in our terminology platform, the value sets for Fire, there are downloads right on the web pages for the Fire specification. Those are moving to UTG in the future. I know there's a first initial release of UTG that's out there, but I know they're, like Carol mentioned, the UTG group are working out some details and cleaning up some of the content, but getting it from HL7, either through the UTG website or through the FIRE specification website itself is the original source of truth. And then folks like us who have a terminology platform include that as part of our available subscribable content if folks need terminology beyond what is directly coming from HL7. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the, the, the probably the most practical reasons why people should be excited about UTG is its ability to package all of the HL7 content that's not valid bound in one single place, making it available via web browser and in a single package has never happened in the history of HL7 before. For those of us who, who've been working with HL7 content, painfully recall, you know, getting each HL7 v2 version, getting the HL7 v3, getting the fire content, all of that occurred from different places in different formats. And with UTG, now you have the opportunity to get everything in, in one place. I mean, but let me ask a question about that because you guys are know a lot more about this, but is the intent of UTG so you have the intentional and extensional value sets, the ones that are, are based on a specific set of codes and the ones that are really based upon subsetting um, uh, ontologies based on a set of rules. Some content updates very frequently. Um, I don't imagine that the UTG is going to pin up subsets whenever a terminology update happens. Are they just going to maintain the rules and expect the, the people that are using the data to actually spin the rule-based uh, value sets, or are they planning on keeping that current? What do you know about that? Um, so for the value set piece, it's not the intent for UTG to act as a live terminology service by which new expansions would be generated. It's more of a repository to represent the versions of those value sets that have been published. Right? So if within an implementation guide, 
a value set has been defined as an enumerated list, it is then you know included within the UTG repository. And when it's updated by the owners of that implementation guide because it's published a new version, then the uh, new value set would be registered and versioned within UTG. A lot of the code systems that are utilized within HL7 products, you know, especially within the finance and payer area, um, contain references to proprietary content. In which case, the only thing that exists within UTG is you know the code system resource that represents the uh, met, the metadata associated with that external proprietary code system, along with its uh, unique identifier to ensure consistency across HL7 implementations, and a naming system resource which we haven't really talked about previously uh, that allows for you know alternative identifiers including things like voids. So. Earlier, I talked about success stories with Fire. We see a lot of excitement with Fire, and people are starting to think about using it as a persistent messaging function and not just kind of this ad hoc request. And I might say these wrong, so you guys can jump in and help me, but you've got Fire casting, where it's kind of a consistent Fire communication between two systems. And you know, I'm sure there are plans to continue to enhance and add resources. But when you think about Fire and you think about, let's say, the next couple of years. Do you guys have any thoughts about what types of things will get spun up or uh, be developed in FHIR to help solve some of these problems we have in healthcare? A lot of people, when when you start talking about FHIR, they have concerns around, you know, kind of scalability, right? It's fine in theory to have, you know, like a patient resource and being able to exchange that. But in reality, you know, you're exchanging millions of these and, you know, so how does fire scale? Um, and I think there are some kind of efforts that are being led either through government initiatives um, or within the fire community to kind of address that concern about scalability. Um, so there's, you know, the fire bulk data. There's a proposal going through the HL7 community for balloting in May around ONC's Fire at Scale Task Force, which no one will be surprised has an acronym. And this one is FAST. FAST, F-A-S-T, exchange, exchange metadata using RESTful headers. I don't know the intimate details about that effort uh, as it just came out, but I think it's indicative of just the community's uh, willingness to spin up these projects as necessary as you know limitations and gaps are being identified by the community. And I think along with scalability, I mean, I think people, you know, always with sensitivity of data that's uh, passed along and included within healthcare content, um, you know, security, um, and privacy. And, and I know there's efforts underway within those groups also to try to address some of those gaps. And maybe something about provenance as well. That's becoming more and more at issue. And certainly FIRE's trying to help address that. The more interoperability, the more data we exchange from the more places, the more redundancy that there is, the more important that provenance becomes in authenticating the data and knowing that we got the most current right thing from the place it came from. Absolutely. I, I kind of think about data provenance like that as like transponders on aircraft. These modern data platforms are like airports and you need an air traffic controller to know whether you're going to land that plane or not. And you want to know where it came from and where it's supposed to be going. And so I, I would imagine the more we try to leverage fire to span these systems, the more that that's going to be a uh, of something of interest. 
and probably not just with fire too, but I think in, in some of the other standards we have, you know, we've been sharing data for a while now, kind of, I think people get data and then they find ways to try to incorporate it, not always successfully, because in, in a lot of ways, we're still learning as we go through this this kind of journey. But but I think those are things. What do you guys think about genomics and, and other types of data, biomarker data? Have you seen much development in fire around that? Um, yeah, I, I will admit that the genomics area is not my uh, area of, of deep specialized knowledge, but I can say you know that there is a large genomics community um, that have been working towards uh, developing resources uh, to exchange uh, genomic information. And they have brought, you know, to the table new code systems that, you know, probably weren't in play or had been had been widely utilized um, within the HL7 world uh, to the table and are getting them documented and identifiers, you know, standardized for them. And, and I think FIRE, you know, is providing that motivation and it, it becomes really interesting, too, because it's sort of, at minimum, a two-pronged problem, right, of exchanging the underlying molecular sequence information and the ways that we need to harmonize that across the industry for better interoperability, and then also exchanging the observational data. What's the meaning of this genomic information, and how does that apply to the patient's care, to their medication profiles, and all of those kinds of applicability in the clinical world. And so it's kind of two-pronged and the group in fire, the genomics group in fire are trying to undertake to help solve both. Absolutely. I mean, because like genomics is still, it's still very young. That's going to be interesting uh, no matter, no matter where we go. And it's, you've got two problems. One is mm-hmm. you're dealing with a massive data set and you're dealing with a lot of complexity and variation. And then you're dealing with, you know, how I can simplify that information so we can compute on it and make decisions and do reasoning based upon things like genetic variances and things like that. So I think it's an interesting space to watch. And I'm, I'll be curious to see how fire grapples with it, since I'm an engineer first and other things after. One of the things that Carol mentioned was, you know, fire at scale. And I think that people have to remember fire is a, is a canonical layer on top of an existing model in all these different systems. And one of the things that I think is interesting when you talk about putting the fire layer there, every single one of these systems you deal with has a different internal canonical model. The way they represent patient data is different. And I dealt with this back when we were at Zinc, so we were dealing with orders. And, you know, the way one system portrays an order and the way another system portrays an order could be fundamentally canonically different. I mean, one of the examples was always activity order, and you could have something called activity, and the order detail is, you know, up and ad lib. But you could have another place where they don't have the concept of activity; they just have up and ad lib. So you've got this canonical difference. And when you go to populate this interoperability layer, the engineers that are looking at what they have in the data model, and they're looking at what Fire wants and the way Fire portrays the data, you know, they have to make a decision. And they have to figure out how do I take what I've got and make it fit into the box of fire so that I can send it and say that I'm fire compliant. And I think that's one of the things that a lot of people don't think about and don't talk about is that, you know, it's one thing to kind of mandate, here's how I want you to exchange data. But it's kind of like if you lived in a neighborhood and every Friday they sent out something that said, you're making chicken catch a Tory tonight and everybody gets chicken catch a Tory. 
and you look in the fridge and all you've got is a can of tuna and a vanilla wafers, you can't really make chicken cacciatore, at least, you know, you can try. You can try to approximate it. I don't recommend it. And I do think that's one of those things that is a challenge with fire. Because as people continue to augment what they want in those resources, even if things are optional, there's an expectation that I'm going to get this package and it's going to look like this. That's the whole basis of fire. But if people can't populate that model because their systems just aren't sophisticated enough to do that, fire itself can't fix that canonical gap. Sometimes going from my internal data model to a standard, whether it's fire or HL7 or CCDA or whatever it is, OMOP, I have to put energy and work. The structural distance between where I'm going and where I'm coming from, you know, that's measured in work. And that work impacts systems. And those systems are the things that get squeezed when you start talking about doing things at scale. You know, one of the things that should happen in our industry is that as people articulate the resources in fire. If we're part of a smart ecosystem in healthcare, what'll happen is people who are designing systems will stop trying to reinvent the wheel and at the very least say, well, what does fire require? And is the fire model suitable for what we want to do in our system? Because the closer we get to fire as we start rolling out new capabilities, the less work we have to do to accommodate fire. Like when we, when we develop things in clinical architecture that use patient data, whether you're talking about in our ClinEvolve product or in the inferencing model for medical or whatever we do, the first place we go, correct me if I'm wrong, we look at the standards. We say, well, what do the standards need? Because a lot of smart people sat down and tried to figure out, you know, what should be in an allergy resource? What should be in a condition resource? There's no reason why anybody developing a system in healthcare shouldn't stop and say, what do these really smart people think that we would need? Fire, because it's practical. It doesn't have all the weird abstraction that, say, you know, the HL7 RIM model had, where I kind of appreciated what they did in the RIM model, but a lot of it was seemed very esoteric to me and not really examining the pragmatic way we grapple and use patient data in healthcare. It seems to me, though, that that concept of the way fire has evolved and it being practical is what lends itself to that next generation of interoperability and making the kind of thing work that you're talking about, about everybody doesn't have to invent their own data model anymore. And gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we could get to that point in healthcare, right? Yeah. I mean, and there's some kind of like easy gimmies uh, in terms of, you know, uh, how, uh, you know, governing bodies like the ONC that are making recommendations can utilize FIRE to ensure the exchange of certain information that they know can help solve other problems. Right. I mean, I think one of those examples is, you know, in the final version of the rule, it might have been, you know, uh, the ONC added additional data elements or requirements that will make patient matching easier. Right. They added previous addresses to what needs to be made available for matching and email addresses. Right. So it's almost like I've had the same hotmail address since I was 17. I've lived in 10 different places probably since then. You know, but that email address has followed me around. At what point is that something that's that's starting to be considered? Um, But, you know, the combination of uh, the ONC rule and the APIs and the fire resources that contain that information could make that possible, right? For people to say, hey, let's try to use email addresses to help go through the process of patient matching. Sure. I think the only challenge is 
people giving real email addresses at that point. Well, yeah, but, you know, hey, if you're going to lie about your address or your email address, yeah, I, I mean, nothing's going to help us. Nothing's going to help us standardize that. I'm much more likely to give a wrong phone number or email address on my little uh, barcode card that goes at the grocery store than I am to my doctor. Yeah. You know, <laughs> also, I want my doctor, I want her to be able to reach me. Yeah. And I think email addresses, I mean, there's some, there, there, because you, a lot of times that's what you use as your login to your patient portal. So it, you know, yeah, it doesn't, exactly. uh, it, unless you're, um, you know, got seven different identities, uh, it doesn't behoove you to provide, you know, erroneous emails. Obviously, still some issues there, but just kind of an example of. I mean, you're you're talking about, there's a lot of things that we tend to get stuck in a rut. It's like refactoring software. Occasionally, you look at what you're doing, you're saying, wait a minute, that just doesn't make sense anymore. I mean, the world has changed. We're missing the boat because we're stuck in this rut of looking at things in a, in a very particular way. It's absolutely correct and true. Carol, you're the product manager for our, our lovely fire terminology services at Clinical Architecture and the, the initiatives we have around that. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, sure. One of the things that we undertook to do when we built fire terminology services is to give that standardized interface into the services. So obviously folks who are familiar with our Symmetical platform know that we have a very robust suite of APIs, but we also wanted to accommodate that space where customers might want to have an industry standard mechanism for interacting with our terminology services. And so while we didn't initially want to provide per se, a full-blown fire server. We certainly wanted to be accommodating and provide fire compliant terminology services for interacting with the content that we provide through our platform. And so that's what we have today. Our services are for compliant. In QA now, we've had STU3 services for a while. We still maintain backward compatibility to DSTU2. We hope to retire that fairly soon, obviously, as 4B and R5 come out. And as soon as our customers no longer need it, then that'll be retired. But that's kind of our general approach of how we map, how we align the content assets and the functionality that's available in a terminology platform like Symmetical with the industry standard that is fire terminology services. Are there any events coming up around fire in the next between now and let's say the end of 2020? I mean, AMIA is coming up, but anything else? Well, we just finished with the fall work group where all the big work groups at HL7 convened to get their work done. And as Carol talked about, you know, she's pretty heavily involved in that. So I'll let her speak to that more if we want to. There's a fire dev days coming up. I forget the exact date. Yeah, it's in November. Um, we always participate in that as an attendee. Sometimes we also present and sometimes we engage at the workgroup connectathons. We did not do that this year because we didn't have a, a new product to engage with at the connectathon. But those are the HL7 specific events that are coming up. What else would you say, Carol Mack? Well, I guess just, yeah, just the January meeting. I mean, it seems far off, but, you know, the three months in between, you know, working group meetings and official fire connectathons go pretty quickly. Yes, it does. And I mean, obviously, you know, we have a new product in the pipeline that's fire enabled. So at some point we may talk about that at one of the connectathons or other industry 
meetings. So we won't be invisible at all of those going forward. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll use this opportunity, you know, to put my HL7 volunteer and vocab coacher hat on to encourage any of our listeners here to participate in the Fire Connectathon and, and encourage their friends and family <laughs> to provide their use cases to the terminology services track. Um, you know, often we kind of joke when those meetings are in person, you know, myself or Rob House and Rob McClure will get up in front of everybody and say, we know you're all using terminology. <laughs> but you're not interacting with terminology services. We will buy you a beverage of your choice if you do so. Sometimes we get lucky. A lot of times the people show up, the developers show up at those connectathons, and they're very focused on their particular implementation and their use case and, you know, proving conformance to the standard uh, and are less focused on, you know, the uh, standardization and the appropriate use of terminology resources. I think eventually, you know, within the organizations, they get to that portion and, and they, they think through that process. But we sure would love to have them participating and interacting with terminology services at the Connectathon because that allows, you know, the people that develop terminology services to see the different use cases, see the data in the wild, and improve the resources and the operations, you know, that are being put out there for use uh, by implementers. Excellent. Well, Anything else either one of you folks would like to put out there before we uh, wrap this up? Not for now. I just think we're um, under our quota on fire puns for a conversation of this length. So it's a that's a miss for us. <laughs> I don't know, Carol. I can feel the burn. <laughs> nice. Uh, well, that's a surefire way to end this uh, podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Podcast, um, a.k.a. Fireside Chat. There you go. That might be the title of this thing when we're done. Fireside Chat with Charlie and two Carols. Carol one and two. Carol squared. That's yeah. right. I really appreciate you guys taking the time, and I'm very grateful to have both of you out there representing us and doing your part to make fire better and help the industry do a better job of making the most of the data that we're, we're pushing around. So thank you to Carol and Carol, and thank you to everybody for listening. I am Charlie Hart, and this has been the InfraMonster Podcast. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm.